Now then, with a view to the uh, blessing of God, let's turn to chapter 4 again. And verse 10, where Jesus answers the woman by saying to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And again, verse 13 where Jesus refers to the water of the well, he says, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So living water, as the Lord describes it in these verses. Now on the last two occasions on which we looked at this particular passage of Scripture, we looked at these two very different people at the well. On the one hand, we have this lost woman, just known as the woman of Samaria, and on the other hand, we have the Saviour of lost souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. There they are together on either side of a well that is just seven foot in diameter. And on the last occasions we looked at what took them both there. Last Lord's Day evening we saw how the woman came as a woman that is unfulfilled, unhappy, and very much alone, which is the reason that she is there at 12 noon when nobody else is there, and she is in that kind of situation just because of the choices that she made in life. And this morning we saw how the Lord Jesus Christ came to the well, led by the Spirit, as he was in all his ways, and always seeking to do his Father's will, fulfilling the ministry that was appointed to him in this world, and that involved being at this well near the village of Sychar at 12 noon on this particular day. Now, you'll remember, as I said this morning, that when she sees him, she is immediately full of prejudice. These prejudices are just in her and they would come to the fore as soon as she recognises his distinctive Jewish dress. She's full of misconceptions about what he's like, of bound to be like, and the fact of the matter is that when she comes to the well she has no desire whatsoever to speak to him and she has no expectation that he's going to speak to her. For cultural reasons and, as she understands it, religious reasons. Sadly, she doesn't expect Jews to speak to her or to want anything to do with her. Culturally also, it would be deemed perhaps inappropriate by some for a man just to speak to a woman like that on her own. 
Now Christ is well aware of these prejudices, but he begins to speak to her by simply asking her for a drink. Give me to drink. Now, it's a simple request, but it begins a conversation. And sometimes it just takes a very simple statement or request to open the most important conversations. And we need to remember that. Now, she immediately expresses her surprise that he, as a Jew, speaks to her as a Samaritan. That's her opening part of the conversation. How is it that you, a Jew, actually speak at all to me as a Samaritan? Now, you could see that as an opportunity to talk to the woman about the division between the Jews and the Samaritans, the historical reasons for that division. After all, there was actually a good reason for that division, and I touched on that just last Sabbath evening. The religion of the Samaritans was always a danger to the people who were taking God seriously, that is, the Jewish people in the South. And mingling too much had always caused problems. Now, as I said, you can take that too far in responding to it. And not having anything to do with the Samaritans is taking that too far. And believers always need to be very, very careful that they don't cut themselves off entirely from the world. It's one thing not to be doing certain activities that the world do or go to certain places that the world goes to. It's another thing just to stand aloof and to stand at a distance and to have nothing to do with them. Now, as I said, the Lord could have taken this opportunity to go out that way. Well, we're Jews and you're Samaritans and here's why. But he doesn't. And it's noteworthy that he doesn't. That's for later, maybe. But the fact of the matter is that in matters of religion and salvation, it's far better to go straight away to the first things, the most important things and the deepest things. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ does. He immediately moves to a great need for eternal life, by implication, death too. But eternal life and how we can find it and where we can find it. These are the things that the Lord wants to speak about. Now surely, friends, and I'm talking to Christian friends here particularly, there's a pattern there for ourselves too. When you meet a, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or a Roman Catholic or a man of the street who's just sectarian because he's been brought up to belong to a particular sect, whether Protestant or Catholic or whatever, there's, there's no point in being drawn into conversations to do with the differences between these people and between them and you. The Lord's example here means that, that we go deeper or to switch that round, that we aim far higher, as the Lord himself does here. It's best to go to the main things, not to the things that drive apart, but the things that bind together. In other words, our common need. As people who are lost, as people who know that there is something significantly wrong, whatever it is, whatever the precise nature of it is, 
something fundamental wrong with the human condition, what they sometimes refer to as the human predicament, something wrong with us all that's leading to constant broken dreams and unfulfilled hopes, death, disease, disillusionment, destruction of family, destruction of personality, all these things. These things undoubtedly bind us together. Sin and its consequences, including, of course, the ultimate consequence of death and hell. And our great need to be restored into the fellowship and favour of God. These are the fundamental things that we need to address right away. And the Lord wants to introduce her to that first thing. Her deepest and her most fundamental need. And so he says, when she says, how come you're talking to me? He says, if you knew God's gift, and if you knew the identity of the one who's actually speaking to you right now, you would say to him, or to me, give me a drink. Instead of me asking you for one, you would ask me for one. And what's more, he says, I would give you living water. Now it's obvious, well it should be obvious, that that is a spiritual statement of some kind. It's a spiritual statement that involves spiritual thirst of some kind and spiritual satisfaction or fulfilment of some kind. It's not designed to explain everything, far from it. In fact, it's quite vague. It's designed to arouse interest. It's designed to encourage the asking of questions. Perhaps you or I might be tempted to say, well, this, this, and this, and this leads to this, and this leads to that. It doesn't do it that way at all. Broad concepts that he doesn't fill in, but very much speaking about life and death. It does invite questions. For example, questions like, what gift? What gift of God? Or, who, who are you? When you say, if you knew my identity, well, well, what is that identity? Or, what is your role in relation to this gift of God in which he's, of which you speak? And there's plenty of questions you could ask that would be natural to ask. Instead of that, sad to say, she misunderstands what the Lord says and she takes offence. Now, today these are conversation stoppers. And the last thing you would want really normally when you introduce the things of God to somebody is that they misunderstand you and that they take offence from what you said. But that's exactly what happens to this woman. First of all, she misunderstands the Lord's reference to living water. For her, living water means spring water or fountain water or even water that comes through subterranean channels as opposed to water that simply lies in a well. Now, it's not clear really whether Jacob's well here near Psycho was actually a, a subterranean spring or whether it was more like a, a kind of rain pit. These are two different kinds of wells. Some wells are just cut and they gather rainwater. 
Other wells come as a result of extensive digging until you come across a spring and the well is formed around that. But that's the way that her mind goes. And she assumes that Christ is saying that he could go deeper into this well than she could, get fresher water than the water she has obtained by just letting down her water pot. And her response to him is, this well is deep. And if you visit it today, you'll discover it is about 100 feet deep. And what's more, she says, you've got nothing to draw with. I I see no implement. You've got no pot. You've got no rope. Nothing like that. So where is it that you get this living water from? How, How can you reach down and find in this well what none of us are able to find? So she misunderstands. But you'll notice too that she takes offence. The devil seems to see to it that we always take offence when a Christian speaks to us. You may not have noticed that, but it seems to me to happen all the time. A Christian hardly has to open his or her mouth when the person that they're speaking to takes offence. And she does too. She just moves on from this living water and she says, Are you actually claiming another source of water around these parts? One that's better than the one we've got? Are you greater than our father Jacob? It's astonishing, really, how she seems to take all this so personally. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? And it was good enough for him, she says. He drank from it, his family drank from it, and his livestock drank from this well. Now, before we notice the offence exactly, I think it's worth noticing how she talks about her ancestor Jacob. I mentioned last week that she had some kind of respect of some kind for her religious heritage and her religious forefathers, even though she wasn't particularly religious herself. It's amazing how she won't actually emulate what she claims to admire. But a lot of us do that. We claim to admire people, uh, but yet we don't emulate them where it really matters. She's proud to have Jacob connected to her and her to be connected to Jacob, but she doesn't want to live like Jacob. She doesn't follow his footsteps. She doesn't believe what Jacob believed. She doesn't live like Jacob lived. That's not as unusual as you might think. The person I know of who knows the Covenanters best is someone who, well, let's just say you wouldn't guess it from his life. But he lives and breathes the Covenanters, their exploits, their attainments, how they stood for God, how they died on the scaffold. How full they were of hope in God as they died on the scaffold, but looking at his life, well, he admires them, but he doesn't emulate them. It's a strange kind of admiration that doesn't lead to emulation. The Lord actually rebuked the Pharisees for that. In his last significant encounter with them in Matthew chapter 23, he rebukes them because, well, he says to them, you build, you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn their monuments. These are monuments to their name, to their ministries, to their life and to their death. You you take care of their tombs 
you garnish or you adorn their monuments. But the Lord says, you are just like your fathers who actually stoned them in the first place. Jesus says, oh, that's not what you say. You say, if we had been alive in the days of our fathers, we would not have stoned them. But the Lord says, your actual building of their tombs and adornment of the monuments means something different to me than what it means to you. To me, it means that you're finishing the act of their execution. You're completing their murder. You are sealing their burials. Because he says, in your heart of hearts, if Isaiah was alive today, he says, he would condemn you and you would saw him in half, just as he was sawn in half at the end of his own ministry. The same is true today. There are people who speak about churchmen who formed this nation. And, and yet, if they were alive today, there would be no acknowledgement on either side. It's possible that you can speak of the godly people who were so instrumental in these islands or in this nation, forging our education system, our legal system, giving us the sense of nationhood that we possess. But the fact of the matter is, if they were here today and speaking, you'd stone them. John Knox is buried under a car space outside the Faculty of Advocates. There are statues to him here and there, but what do they mean? I think the country's real estimation of John Knox lies in the fact that he's buried under a car space. There are monuments to Covenanters all over the, the country, but who really cares? And this woman can admire Jacob, but the proper admiration results in emulation. Put it another way, if she really admires Jacob, why is she choosing to live like his brother Esau? Esau's brother is described in the New Testament as a profane person. Somebody who didn't really respect the holiness of God. He's also described as a, as a fornicator, somebody who gave his life in, with, into sexual immorality of different kinds. Now, we don't know this woman's precise circumstances, fair enough, but the fact that she has chosen to live the way she lives says something too. She, she is certainly no longer at least respecting marriage. She's not respecting the law of God, but still she claims to be close to Jacob. Friend, if, if you admire Christians in your own family, in your own heritage, perhaps even as close to you as a godly grandmother or a godly grandfather. What sense does it make, and I say this with restraint and respect, but what sense does it make for you to, to glorify their name and to honour their memory while living lives that are completely distinct from the lives they showed you and commended to you? It's the best honour you can give such people not to live the lives they lived, and to embrace the faith that they professed. But leaving that aside, leaving that aside, she manages to be offended. Who do you think you are? Is in effect what she's saying. Who do you think you are? Now friends, we live in a day, as, suppose we know this whether we're Christians or not, we live in a day when people are really easily offended. John Calvin, the 
the great 17th century theologian, 16th century theologian, said that there's a huge difference between offence taken and offence given, a distinction that is very often not borne in mind. And that's very true today. People take offence even when no offence was given or intended. But there are people who specialise in taking offence. If you use the wrong word or the wrong sequence of words, they're offended. You offended their people. You offended their past. And there's a way in which you would think that this conversation was finished. I mean, after one sentence, she misunderstands it and she's offended. And according to what I said this morning, I suppose you would think in a way that Christ would leave the conversation there. There are times when the Lord very abruptly stops conversations. Sometimes he doesn't even enter them, even when he's encouraged to enter them, simply because of the attitude of the people. Sometimes you will find people asking questions and we're told that he just doesn't answer them. There's a reason why. For example, when King Herod asked him a question, and he had been longing to ask him questions, Jesus didn't answer him a word. Why didn't Jesus answer him a word? You would expect that the Lord Jesus would answer anybody's questions. Not so. Solemnly, he didn't answer Herod's question because Herod had had enough questions answered. And Herod was heaping sin upon sin. And he put the crowning shame on that sinful course of life by executing John the Baptist. The greatest of all the prophets... And no greater man had walked the earth save the Lord Jesus Christ than John the Baptist himself. So when Herod wants his curiosity satisfied by asking questions, Jesus says nothing to him. We should fear, we should legitimately fear coming to a place where we ask God something and God has nothing to say. Because he said enough. And we should fear coming to a place where we no longer hear the word of God in any meaningful or soul-moving or soul-stirring way because God has nothing to say to us anymore. You should fear that and I should fear that. And we should spiritually seize the day of opportunity while it lasts before it comes to an end. Because one day it will but nonetheless, I said in the morning that sometimes you've just got to try to see where a person is. Just try to look at the door of their heart. Just to see if the door opens. And if it doesn't, what I said to you is just leave the door. Don't harass, don't harangue, don't badger people. And that is the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ himself tells us to do that. But at the same time, we mustn't be too quick to conclude that the initial response is a final rejection. It looks here as though the Lord has tried the door of this woman's heart and there's nothing coming back. But that's not so. Even though she's offended, she's not angry. And what's more, she doesn't walk away. She could have walked away. She's already filled her water pot. That's what she came for, remember? 
It's always easy to walk away. You remember the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. A mock trial, a show trial, a kind of charade, except it was serious, was made by the Pharisees in connection with this woman who supposedly was caught in adultery. A public exhibition was made of her, or to be made of her. And, of course, they used the Lord Jesus Christ in doing so, or they tried to. You'll remember that the Lord very famously intervened, not to justify the woman, but to accuse her accusers. And after the Lord had spoken to her accusers, we're told that they left one by one being convicted in their conscience. The woman could have walked away. She's a free woman. There's no accusation against her anymore. She doesn't walk away. She doesn't walk away because she knows that the Christ who is interacting with her is the one man who can really condemn her. And he, condemn, he can condemn her without picking up a stone and throwing it at her. She knows that she's in the presence of the searcher of hearts, the one who knows the truth about her. Not just what had happened that day, but what's happened all her life. And praise God, she stands her ground and stays where she is until she gets justification for her soul. Neither do I condemn you. You now go, he says, and sin no more. You've been washed and changed and regenerated by the power of God, even through this very encounter. Now go and leave here, changed and sin no more. This woman could also have walked away, but she doesn't walk away. I've met loads of people down through the years as a minister who have left churches. Sometimes understandably so. Sometimes not understandably. Sometimes they tell me how they were offended. And when they tell me how they were offended, I'm wondering, what what was the offence in that? It's really easy to be offended and to make yourself think you've been offended. I mean, it's quite possible that something I say in connection with all these things will offend you. So it's easier to say, well, I'm not going back there again. Well, in a way, that's up to you. Of course it is. Free country in that respect. You can come or go. But ask yourself, really, if, if you want your soul saved, if, if there is a God and you believe that things are maybe not right between yourself and himself, and if you maybe feel that you need your soul put right with that kind of God, a God who is holy and unchangeable, a God who judges and who judges inexorably and righteously, well, do you want to come out and be whitewashed? Do you want to come out and be told that everything's fine and everything's okay and you're lovely and your relationships are lovely and everything in your life is lovely? There are some people who go to church to hear that kind of stuff. But, friends, it's better to know the truth. The truth about ourselves, the truth about our souls, the truth about our relationships with people, the truth about our relationship with God. And if we are currently hell-deserving sinners, then we need to know that. It's best to know why, and it's best to know what the remedy is. The fact remains that the house of God must be a place where offense is given in some kind of way. The offense of the cross, I have no desire to offend you or you to offend me. Let the word of God, though, let it speak. Let God speak to your soul and to mine. And if it exposes us, well, so be it. And thank God 
she just doesn't walk away. Now the Lord doesn't take this offense on. He doesn't say to her, oh well, I'm sorry I seem to compare myself with Jacob in a way that maybe offended you or your heritage or defended your, your people. He just simply goes back to what he had in the first place and he says, whoever drinks of this water here between us in this well is going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. The water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. In other words, the living water of which I'm speaking has got nothing to do with this well, either here or anywhere else. What I'm telling you is that God is a gift. And I'm telling you too that God sent me to give that gift to people. That this gift is what I call living water. And if you actually drink of this living water, you will never get thirsty again. In fact, once you drink it, it will form its own spring. And it will keep watering up inside your soul unto everlasting life. Now these are wonderful words. Sometimes our familiarity with wonderful words can diminish their wonder. But they remain wonderful words. They deserve to be written in gold. These words presuppose thirst. They only make sense to a thirsty soul. But tell me, friends, who doesn't thirst? I mean, who's not thirsty in life? The only difference between us is that we all try to quench that thirst in different ways. Some are successful and some aren't. Just depends on the water supply. What's her thirst? It's obvious she's got it. It's got something to do with her failed marriages, with her unhappiness, with the fact that she's living the way she's living against the models of the community and against the law of God. It's obvious that she's looking to quench her thirst in the wrong places. Now God made us thirsty by nature. He's given us appetites and he's provided for the fulfillment of those appetites. He's given us truth for the mind which is satisfied in the knowledge of himself, truth to live by. He's also provided us with a deep longing for relationship to satisfy the heart and our emotional being. That relationship must first of all exist with himself. But after it exists with himself, it needs to exist with others too. Because God places us in society and no man is an island or is meant to be an island. And these relationships with God primarily and then with one another provide what the heart needs. Yes, it provides the truth for the mind. And a wonderful truth it is because all truth is God's truth. 
whether in the worlds of chemistry or physics or biology or art or music or whatever, all truth is God's truth, but also relationships for the heart. These provide love and joy and peace. Just take these three things alone. Love and joy and peace. You want them, yes? You need them, yes? Because God made you to have them and you're meant to have them. You're meant to know love, the reception of it and the giving of it. You're meant to know joy too and you're meant to know peace in your heart. And all of life in a way is a striving for that. Those who really come to know God have it and the better they know God, the more of it they have. I often think of Lachlan Mackenzie, the famous minister of Loch Carran in the 18th century. Uh, there was a biography of him. He was a, a distinguished man for holiness of life and conduct. And the biography of him is incidentally called The Happy Man. Now, for some of you, uh, that may be a strange juxtaposition or even an oxymoron to call a happy man a holy man. But that holy man was a happy man. Because the holy man is a happy man. And the happy man is a holy man. Now it may be to you that you've never put these two words together. Holy and happy. If you were doing word association, you would never say, if someone said to you holy, you would never say happy. Or if someone said happy, you would never say holy. But the Christian understands that. The Christian understands that the holier they get, the happier they get. They also understand the more that sin gets a foothold in their life, the less happy they get. We know that as Christians. I hope too as an unbeliever tonight, if you're here as an unbeliever, you are realizing that the more sin dominates and conquers your thought processes and your life and your emotional life, the less happy you become too. Because that's the way it goes. Sin is the source of all unhappiness and holiness the source of happiness because the source of all happiness is God himself now that's how God made us that's how Adam and Eve came in purity from the hand of God but of course sin shattered that sin shattered it first of all by making us first of all exchange the truth of God for a lie, we've embraced a lie the most fundamental lie is that God is not that's the most fundamental lie possible. It's the negation of the truth. It's the negation of the absolute reality that gives meaning to the universe and to your soul. It's the foundational lie. So we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And the moment that happens, there is a profound alienation that comes into humanity. It's first of all on the vertical level because we are immediately alienated from God. From then we begin to misunderstand him and to misrepresent him. And that vertical alienation replicates itself on the horizontal level. We are all alienated from one another. Gradually hateful. And being hated too. But the fact is that deep down you desire what you've lost. When did you lose it? You lost it when we all fell. Because 
Being in the image of God remains, but being in the likeness of God doesn't. And you know deep down in your heart that you need to know the truth. You know deep down in your heart that God is real, that your conscience is not deceiving you. You know that there is a judgment seat. And you desire love, and you desire joy, and you desire peace. But because you're opposed to God, you look, you look for all that elsewhere. My people, God says through Jeremiah the prophet, have committed two great evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of all waters. Two, they have hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. A heart isn't a vacuum. Either God's in there or something playing God will be in there. Sometimes we can try and fill that space with lawful things. They can all take the place of God. Your husband, your wife, your children, your work. And you can lavish on all these things what was meant to be given to God in the first place. But can you, you can use them to be in your life what God was meant to be in your life. Sometimes you can look to unlawful things and drink those waters. Unlawful sexual pleasures, drugs, hard or soft, gluttony, drunkenness, a whole host of things. Gambling, just sheer pleasure-seeking, hedonism, as it's officially called, drinks of water to quench the thirst. Because deep down, you want to love and to be loved. You want peace for your heart, for your life, for your conscience. And you want this elusive thing called joy. Which you get in little bursts. But then evaporates. And I suppose that that attempt to get satisfaction either through lawful or unlawful things is represented by the woman who's gone through five marriages and now tries a relationship that doesn't involve marriage at all. And she still hasn't found, of course, what she's looking for. Why not? Well, because she hasn't found God. The fact of the matter, friends, is that nothing finite will give you what God will give you. You have an immortal soul, a soul that's going to last beyond your death. You've got a soul that lasts forever, either living in heaven or under a curse in hell. But that soul, the way you're made, will never ever be satisfied by anything at all in this world, whether it is lawful or unlawful. As Jesus puts it very simply, you thirst again. You thirst again. You're here tonight. You got what you thought would satisfy you. Are you satisfied? No, you're not. In fact, as you know yourselves, the more your thirst grows, the harder it is to slake it or to satisfy or satiate it. There's a law of diminishing returns in operation too that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. The law of diminishing returns says that the greater your need grows, the less your ability to satisfy it. Why the drug addict eventually is consumed because 
what they looked for has destroyed every other part of them and at last it just it just doesn't do it it's why the person in a relentless pursuit of physical pleasures end up sometimes asphyxiating themselves because they can't get what they're trying to get because you can't get it even that aspect of life god has ordained that that aspect of life functions and flourishes within the marriage bond and in a relationship of love the human heart says no i'll extract it out of there and make it an end in itself it makes an end of you everything does it's no game messing around with sin you either kill it or it kills you whoever drinks of this water will thirst again and at last i suppose the human soul is just like a star collapsing in on itself and eventually becoming just a, a black hole where there's nothing there sometimes when i when i think of the destiny of the human race without god i suppose i'm not the only one whose mind gravitates immediately to the rich man in the illustration that the lord gave i think i referred to him last week he's he's in a condition in a lost eternity of permanent thirst perpetual thirst you'll remember he wants abraham to commission lazarus just to dip his finger in cool water because he says i am tormented in this flame that thirst there represents a spiritual thirst that never goes away it represents fundamental cravings now because that's all you can call them now it's a desire for things like hope like peace like joy like love things that aren't to be found where he now is in dante's famous poem in the middle ages dante's inferno um, written above the entrance to to hell itself are the words abandon hope all ye who enter here that's very true but hope's not all you abandon when you enter there it's just the abandonment of everything that's good the abandonment of love and of peace and of joy too they're just not to be found but there's a solution i mean it needn't be that way as god said to israel long ago why will you die o house of israel there's a solution the solution is given here briefly but it also comes out in that other passage that we read at the beginning of the service when jesus was at the feast of the tabernacles in the temple normally lasted 7 days but god gave a command to put an eighth day on the end of it the number 8 in scripture always means renewal revival and on the eighth day of the feast a certain ritual was observed where the priests went out to the pool of siloam just outside jerusalem and they filled a golden pitcher with water and they took that pitcher inside the city and near the altar they poured it out and that symbolized for them not not just for christ not just for us but it symbolized for them the day that was coming the messianic day the day when the 
Christ would come, the Christ who would restore Israel and restore the world, actually. That day when he would come and pour the Spirit of God upon the earth, upon the dry earth, they they looked forward to that. And, And they looked forward as a people who were under a Roman yoke and under Roman bondage. For them, all these things had become political, really. But there was many a good man and good woman who saw in the outpouring of that water a a day when God was going to come and pour the Holy Spirit upon the earth. That day, of course, came with Pentecost. But we look for its repetition. We we look for times of refreshment, as they're called in Acts chapter 3. We saw them in this island. We saw them in this nation, although the last truly national revival from Orkney down to Dumfries and from Dundee over to Ayrshire was in 1859. A long, long time ago. But God has remembered parts of the land here and there. And we pray for those days to come. Now when the Lord saw this ceremony enacted, we're told that he stood up and he cried out loud to the thousands in the temple, if any man thirsts, he says, let him come to me and drink. An astonishing thing to say. You would say at the human level it's a risky thing to say. But this is who he is. This is his ministry and this is his message. You want water? You want life? You want renewal? You want relationship with God? If you're thirsty for love and for joy and for peace, thirsty for truth, come to me, he says, and drink. If you understand who I am, you will say to me, give me a drink. And what's more, the Lord says that if you believe in me, not only will I give you a drink, but I will actually put a fixed water supply into your heart. So much so that it will keep bubbling in such a way that you never need to look for a water supply again. And according to John 7, 37, that supplies the Holy Spirit. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, even tonight, a spring is opened up in your heart, in your dry heart. A spring is opened up there by the Holy Spirit of God, who doesn't just come upon you, but actually comes to indwell you, person with person. He comes to unite you to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. His glorious resurrection life, which he possesses in glory, he, can I use the figure, plugs you into that life, unites you to that life, so that the life that you then begin to live is is not your old life anymore. It is Jesus Christ who lives in you and you in him. A perpetual Holy Spirit originated source of irrigation of water for your dry and needy soul to give endless satisfaction. In a way, and I'm I'm not changing what the scripture says here, in a way there's a sense in which your thirst is ongoing. It's just that it's always quenched. I was saying that in fellowship with somebody very recently. I was thinking sometimes that when I look forward to heaven, I I don't look forward to never being thirsty again. 
I look forward to being thirsty all the time with it being met constantly by, by the water that the Lord Jesus gives. After all, is that not why we're given the image in heaven of being at a table? Why be at a table if you're never hungry? Surely the idea is that your hunger is just always met. You never suffer in it. It's just always met. I, for one, look forward to that. I hope you too will start to look forward to a time when this world isn't all that is. In fact, at its best, it's introductory. Because the best wine, as always, is yet to come. So the Holy Spirit, as he dwells here, will constantly lead your mind to the truth as it is in Christ. He will lead your heart out to an ever deeper relationship with the Father and with the Son through the Holy Spirit. And that will bubble up into eternal life, eternal in quality as well as in quantity. If you were to ask what eternal life is, my time's going, it's gone, and I'll just have to finish this. But if you were to ask what eternal life is, Jesus said this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Isn't it amazing that he doesn't describe it in terms of duration? I suppose describing it in terms of duration would be obvious, because eternal is eternal. But what is eternal life, he says, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent? Uh, when this spring starts to bubble, there's a fullness of love that takes root here. The love of God shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. A love that goes up the way and that reaches out the way. A fullness of joy. Joy in the heart, which Peter calls joy inexpressible and full of glory because it anticipates glory and tastes it. There's also a fullness of peace. My peace I give you, Jesus says, not as the world gives, give I unto you. A peace that passes all human understanding. Wonderful words. It's hard to know exactly what the woman made of it. I was going to touch on that. I'll leave it and we'll come with it. Come to it next time. May the Lord bless our meditation on his word. Let's stand to pray. O oh Lord, as, as those who heard our Saviour preach on the bread of life, said, Evermore give us this bread. So in connection with water, Lord, we pray that you would give us to drink. Our souls are thirsty in this life. And we are conscious that there is a, a water supply that will never really satisfy in fact, the more we take of it, the more we thirst. We pray that you would lead us to the Holy Spirit himself, who unites us to the Saviour, who truly gives us to drink. O Lord, enable us, as life passes by and as it slips by, to reach out our hand and to lay hold on the one who gives eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our last psalm is Psalm 4.
Psalm 4 and singing at verse 6. In verse 2 there's a question that's addressed to all of us. How long will you love vanities, just vain things? In verse 4 there's counsel to us to fear God, to cease from sin, to start speaking to our hearts on our beds and to be silent. That would be a good thing to do tonight. In verse 6, people are asking the question, who will show us any good? Or in the Hebrew, who will show us good? Now, the good there is actually economic. It's connected to Absalom's revival and, sorry, Absalom's rebellion. And as always, people were saying, well, the economy, who's going to manage the economy? Uh, The economy is never the biggest thing. Governments need to remember that. Who will show us good is that which many say. But notice what he says. Of thy countenance the light, Lord, lift on us always. Upon my heart bestowed by thee more gladness I have found than they. That's the people who are looking for good in this world. Even when their corn and wine did most with them about. Now corn and wine there just symbolise a full harvest. They've got everything you could ask for. But they don't have what he has. So therefore, even though he's surrounded by his enemies, I will lay me down in peace and quiet sleep will take because thou only me to dwell in safety, Lord, dost make. The last three stanzas, let's stand and sing.